Okay, so today we'll be covering uh, Judges, if you see here, Judges 12 from verses 8 through 13, I'm sorry, 8 through chapter 13 all the way to 25. Uh, And you'll see on the handouts that Ron is passing out, I've divided the passage that we're going to be going through into three themes. Uh, The first theme you'll see in the handout is, Behold our God. The second theme is salvation through impossible human odds. And point number three is awe and fear of the angel of the Lord. So those are our three points. And uh, we're going to start with the first point, behold our God. Let's, let's begin by looking at chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. Uh, can someone read that? Judges 12, 8 through 15. Thank you. Okay, so in this passage, we have a very brief and concise summary of some of the judges that arose within Israel after the death of the last judge, uh, Nephtha. We read this, and we we don't know what to do with this passage, because all we see is um, a list of new judges. It doesn't talk too much about it. Not much is said about these judges. We're left, in a sense, craving for more detail, right? When we read it, you know, it leads us nowhere. Uh, we have no stirring deeds recorded like what we've seen in the previous uh, records of the judges before. <clears throat> There's no gripping stories, right? No miracles, unless you count uh, the 30 sons and the 30 daughters that they had, uh, the 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and still kept their sanity. Uh, that's a miracle. Um, other than that, nothing stands out too much about this account. But at this point, we expect stories like that of Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah, they had interesting stories that were, um, that were explained in the scripture here. But we don't get that with these judges um, that we read here. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything significant about them. It just means that the Bible doesn't tell us, right? However, uh, it just means that the Bible doesn't tell us. And one thing that is important to notice, especially in a passage like this, like what do we do when we come across a passage where it just gives us information? Uh, but it doesn't specify on the characters. Um, it, it, it basically shows us that the Bible is essentially theocentric, right? Uh, you'll have descriptions of people, uh, but at times the scripture doesn't get, you know, doesn't go too far into the details of their lives. And, and it's just a reminder that the Bible is, is essentially about God. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not always about making sure that it covers the story of every person that we see there. So even though it's filled with stories about men, ultimately, it isn't about men. It's ultimately about God's mighty acts in history, which in many cases involve his mighty acts in the lives of men as well. In other words, even though someone like Gideon receives three chapters, and the writer's purpose is not to relate 
Gideon's life, but rather to show God's saving activity through Gideon's life. Now, if you're like me, I can recall as a young child hearing Bible stories told to me. Um, And instead of hearing about God's mighty acts, the stories were often told in a way that made the Bible characters the hero of the story instead of God. And this is backwards, right? But this is important to recognize when we come across passages that seem to be light on information about the characters. Ultimately, the Bible seeks to bring our attention to the details of God's acts over the details of men. It is as if the scriptures are crying out, Behold your God, right? As it says in Isaiah 49. And that's the scripture's main purpose. Therefore, we can trust that whatever God chooses to reveal to us in the scripture is sufficient. to to accomplish that goal, right? To point us to God. Okay, with that said, another thing we notice when we look at that passage is the absence of rest, right? God would normally give his people rest once they were rescued and ruled under a judge. We're familiar with the ongoing cycle of judges. Do you guys know the ongoing cycle of judges? Can anyone anyone, uh, describe what that cycle looked like? Open the floor to you guys. You guys remember the cycle? Pretty much, yeah. Right? It was, it was like this. Israel would lose a judge, right? Then they would go back to sin and idolatry. And after being punished and depressed, they would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would raise a judge to save him again and bring them to rest for many years until their judge passed away and the same cycle kept going, right? A leader would raise up. There would be peace in the land. They would have rest. Then the judge died. After he died, they were left without a judge, and they went back to their sin. And the cycle kept going. But in this passage that we just read, we see no mention of rest, right? It looks like the cycle broke. If we go back to chapter 28, it speaks on this very issue. And I'm going to show you here. Um, it says in Judges 8:28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, And they raised their heads, what does it say? No more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So notice the words here on the screen. And they raised their heads no more. This spoke of of their dependency on God. They no longer looked up to, to heaven. They forsook him. So particularly in this verse, we see that Israel conquered over Midian and and did receive rest for 40 years, but this will be the last time they receive rest. So after after verse 28, there's no record of the land recovering rest. This is a gift that Israel lost. So from here on out, Judges doesn't follow that reoccurring cycle of rebellion, repentance, rescue, and rest. But like our brother Dave said, they begin to go deeper into a progressive disintegration of a people that will no longer serve Yahweh. Things just get worse for these people. And as we continue in Judges, you'll see that Yahweh's mercy is deep, but it's not easygoing, right? He still has his mercy. He's tender, but he will not be trampled. They they kept going back to their sin. They kept going back to idolatry. And God saw that. He wasn't naive. And before we move on, there are a couple of things that I I noticed also in this passage that, honestly, I I don't know what to do with them, but I'll just point them out. If you remember from last week, we talked about Jephthah and the controversial situation in which Jephthah made a promise to God that he would sacrifice the first thing that would come out of his house if he conquers the Ammonites. And he did conquer the Ammonites. 
And the person that happened to come out of his house, remember he made a pact with God. He said, whoever comes out of there, Lord, I will sacrifice. And it happened to be his only daughter who uh, was a virgin and left him without any descendants. Now, when you compare Jephthah and those judges that came after him, you see that while Jephthah had one daughter with no children and then sacrificed her, leaving him with no descendants, he sort of sandwiched between Jair, which is a judge in chapter 10, who had 30 sons, and Ibizan, who had 60 children. Yet Jephthah had only one, which was sacrificed, leaving it with none in the end. So it's an interesting thing that uh, you see uh, the judges that came after Jephthah having all these kids. Yet Jephthah, the judge prior to them, had one one child. It happened to be a girl, and she was a virgin, and she ended up, she ended up being sacrificed, and so it left him with no descendants. You know, why would God do that? Bless one and not the other. Matthew Henry comments on this, and he says, What a difference was there between Ibzan's family and that of his immediate predecessor, Zephthah. Ibzan has 60 children, and all married, and Zephthah but one, a daughter that dies and lives unmarried, or lives unmarried. Some are increased and others are diminished, yet both are the Lord's doing. Now, being that bearing children was seen as a sign of blessing, the enigma, the riddle, was trying to understand why some had 30 or 40 children and why some had none. But Matthew Henry points out that this is not a matter of man, but rather a matter of God. When we think about the issue of why some have and some do not have, we must remember that the Lord has always been wise in his sovereign choices. Like many other situations where um, it's assumed that some are blessed more than the others, we can only bow before the one who understands uh, what he's doing. He understands because he has wisdom on how he's orchestrating these, these things. One whose understanding is unsearchable. We see this in Isaiah 40, 28. Can someone read that? Amen. In other words, all that God does is purposeful. And always right. And sometimes, uh, humanly speaking, when we think about why are some blessed with this and some not? Why is God allowing this for them and not me? And all that God does is purposeful and always right. And we don't just believe that blindly, right? We don't just have this and we say, well, whatever God does is right. You know, let's not think about it. We don't believe it blindly. We simply recognize that his reasons may be unsearchable to us. We simply fall short of fully understanding and having the full scope of the reality that, that only God has. And I think that question arises when we think about um, you know, people in other countries or even in our country who are suffering. And then across the street we have people who are wealthy and living so comfortably. And we wonder, you know, why them and why, why us? Why is God doing that? But again, we simply fall short of fully understanding and having the full scope of reality that only God has. And we should also 
avoid foolish responses to this kind of riddle, right? Like assuming that if only the parents prayed more fervently or had more faith, God would have blessed them and, and had them uh, have, have much children and be blessed. We should always keep from inflicting that kind of nonsense on others as well. We tend to be like, uh, we tend to like being left with, I'm sorry, we tend not to like being left with no explanations to why God does the things that he does. But faith means that we must be willing to be baffled and simply bow and worship God for his unsearchable yet higher understanding of how he chooses to do things. Never feel that uh, you have the short end of the stick, right? The Lord, um, the Lord is giving and he's taking away, right, from, all, from everyone. And in your circumstance, you may look at your neighbor and say, well, why, why is he blessed and why, why am I not? But remember that all things are working for, for the good of the saints. And God knows he has a, he has a bigger scope on, on why these things are. And we, we ought to trust God. And we, we ought to be baffled and simply bow and worship for, for these unsearchable uh, mysteries. Let us move on to the next point. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. Yep. There's something underlying here that has not been addressed. Sure. And it really begins with Gideon. Yeah. After Gideon's glory and success, he immediately fell into polygamy and yeah. ended up with 70 sons. Yeah, that's right. And which set an example because he was very vocal. Yeah. You can't have multiple wives and 40 children right. without a great amount of wealth. This passage lists several different people who had multiple children, mm -hmm. one with 30 daughters. Yeah, that's great. In order to, or 40 sons, and brought in 30 uh, females, to pay the dowry of 30 would have been someone who was immensely rich. Right. So what happened? All of these people in this downward spiral were taken with two things. Mm. Number one, wealth. Number two, pleasure. Right. And even 
was allowed, right. it was not God's plan. Right. So what happened is they, from Gideon on down, setting the example, made it go further and further and further and further and further down. Yeah. And a lot of their offspring were very often eliminated yeah. by God's suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I mean, it's, we, we read it and we say, there's, well, there's not much here, but yeah. there is. There it's is. A lot. Yeah. There's Amen. a lot to be said about the pursuit of pleasure right. and wealth. And you see the result uh, in that. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Very good. Okay, let's look at the second point on the uh, worksheet. Uh, it's entitled Salvation from Impossible Human Odds. And uh, again, it's based on the following passage, which is Judges 13, verses 1 through 25. Let me put it on the screen. Uh, can I get someone to read the whole thing? Good reader. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so it'll be 1 through 25. Yeah, the whole thing.
Thank you. Okay, so <clears throat> just sort of going back to the beginning here in uh, chapter 13, <clears throat> we can't go on until we pause and think again about the fact that God has now decided to grant mercy on Israel again. And his grace should not be overlooked in this passage. Now the story begins by taking us in the sort of the behind the scenes of the upcoming birth of a new judge that the Lord is raising up. And he goes by the name of Samson. But before Samson, the author takes us through what we see to be a, a nativity story. Starting with a man by the name of Manoah, the story focuses more on Manoah's wife, who remains nameless. And we see from verse 2 that she is barren and, and, and has no children, can't have any children. What is significant in the story is that it follows a very familiar motif that is seen throughout all the scripture, right? Genesis 11, all the way to 21, we see Sarah, who anguished over her childlessness, You also have Rebecca in Genesis 25, who for 25 years of marriage was childless. We also have Rachel, who was both barren and envious until she bore Joseph, right? We see that in Genesis 29 and 30. And later on in Scripture, we have Hannah, right? We see that in 1 Samuel. And Elizabeth in Luke. Now we can see from this motif that often God begins his mighty acts precisely there. Right? In human obscurity and hopelessness. Where we see no possible human energy or ability to serve as a starter. And in this case, we have, an, we have the angel of the Lord appear to Manoah's wife, who was barren, and tell her that she shall conceive and bear a son, and that this son will begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Right? This reminds me of Abraham. God spoke to Abraham and said to him that his wife, Sarah, who was not able to have children and was 90 years old, would not only have a son, but through her would come nations and kings of peoples. Or think about Israel as Moses led them out of Egypt. Here we have poor Moses who faithfully followed God's lead, taking a whole nation out of Egypt, and while being chased by their enemies, God leads them, all of them, to the end of a beach. And I can only imagine Moses thinking to himself, okay, God, we've gone all the way with this plan. Please don't make me look bad here. How in the world are we going to escape now? We're at a dead end, right? But this is God's specialty. God doing what he does best, right? Creating something out of nothing. And God brought them to the point of impossibility. And what does God do? He literally splits the Red Sea in half for them to escape through it. As to say, don't ever doubt me, right? Even if it seems impossible, I'd split the sea in half if I had to. Likewise, we see in our main text a similar situation. God himself is bringing about a savior for Israel. And God has chosen to use his wife, or I'm sorry, the wife of Manoah, who happens to be barren. Here we have God bringing about a savior in the face of impossible human odds, similar to what we see with the birth of Jesus Christ, which is our true Savior, right? Now let's continue with the story. Verse 4, let me put it up on the screen. Can someone read uh, verses 4 through 7? 
Thank you. Okay, so here we have instructions from the angel of the Lord to the, to the wife of Manoah. And she is to be careful not to drink, not to drink strong drinks, right? Eat nothing unclean, and not to cut the hair of her soon coming child. For he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. We see this term Nazarite, right? Nazarite can be understood from its root word Nazir, meaning to dedicate or to consecrate one to the Lord. And we see, uh, we see it from Numbers 6, 1 through 8. The conditions of one who volunteers to be under the Israelite law of the Nazarite. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Numbers 6, 1 through 8 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Whether, I'm sorry, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from, I'm sorry, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, nor even the seeds or their skins. And all the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is complete for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair uh, sorry, locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. This is the vow. Now it's important to note that the Nazarene vow was one to be made voluntarily. For those who wish to separate themselves. But what we see in our main passage is that this holy separation would, was one that was not done voluntarily by Manoah's child, right, Samson. Rather, this was a call that was divinely imposed on him before he was even born. Which ought to highlight Samson, Samson's role as a divinely appointed agent or judge. Samson enters the world already a Nazarite. Which means, consequently, consequently, that his mother would also be observing the terms as well since she was pregnant with him. But again, it's important to see that this was special. God was raising a, ju raising a judge in a unique way unlike the previous judges that we've seen before. Let's look at point number three. Point number three in the handout says, Awe and fear of the angel of the Lord. As we continue, verses 9 through 14 talks about the wife of Manoah rushing to tell her husband while the angel of the Lord, or what the angel of the Lord had said. Manoah seeks the angel of the Lord and asks him to clarify these instructions, right? The angel of the Lord, however, repeats the same thing. He repeats the instructions and emphasizes that she is to observe all that he had commanded. Now, here's where things get interesting. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. Uh, can someone read that? 15 through 18? Manoah 
Yes, please. Uh, if you can, if you can go to verse eighteen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So in the previous verses, specifically verse 6, Manoah's wife described the angel as a man of God, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. So after seeing him, Manoah then wants to honor him by offering him an elaborate meal. But the offer was declined. The angel of the Lord replied, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Now we must ask ourselves, why was food not received, but a burnt offering to the Lord was received? Better yet, how was it even related to each other? Why was the food not simply declined? This shows us that there was more to this angel of the Lord character. Was he and the father of the same essence, equal in power and glory, as it says in the uh, Baptist Confession, question 9, regarding the Trinity? In other words, was this the pre-incarnate Christ? Let's continue on and see. In verse 17, Manoah gets brave and asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? Now, just as a side note, uh, we've received many names of angels sent by God before, right? Scripture, for example, has recorded the name of the angel Gabriel in, in passages from Daniel to Luke. Scripture has also revealed the name of the angel Michael, right, in places like Daniel, Jude, and, uh, and, and Revelation. But what happens when Manoah asks this angel for his name? What does the angel say to him? He says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, it may sound like the angel is merely boasting on the fact that his name is too cool for Manoah to know, but that misses the point, right? This term wonderful used here is not like, it's not at all how we often use it, right? I often say things like, babe, that lasagna was wonderful, or it would be wonderful to have a nice piece of cheesecake next to my coffee today. Rather, the term used here is pili, right? Uh, pili is, is the Greek term for it. Uh, it gets its idea from, from the way it is used in Psalm 139.6. Uh, let's look at the verse. Psalm 139.6. It says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Right? So in this verse, in the psalm, the psalmist is overwhelmed by God's intimate, detailed, comprehensive knowing of him, right? His activities, his words, his purposes, etc. So by wonderful, he is stating that it is beyond me. 
Now, going back to our main text, right? Judges 13, 18. The angel of the Lord is basically saying, my character, my nature is too much. It is beyond you and you simply can't take it all in. Therefore, why do you ask? Right? And what do we see from Manoah, right? He, he held his peace. You better believe he held his peace because there's no way that he would be able to grasp it fully. And the story goes on to say that at that point, Manoah takes his young goat and offers it to the Lord. And he, it says here, he and his wife stood around to watch what would happen. And, and we see in verses 20 through 22. Uh, can someone read that? Notice what I underlined at the end. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. All of a sudden, Manoah and his wife knew who they saw. This wasn't merely a man. They had seen God in a bearable form, right? Pre-incarnate. And what was their reaction? What was their reaction? They fell on their faces to the ground. And what was their confession? We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Now, was this an overreaction? Absolutely not. They knew whom they saw, and yet they were in fear. They knew of the incidences in the past when God has spoken to Moses in Exodus 33:20 and said, you, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. They knew of this, and yet they feared. Knowing what they saw, they felt that they saw too much, that they came too close. Unlike much of today's culture, many dare to question God and even challenge God with no fear of who they're dealing with. And even in many of today's churches, they often forget the holiness of God. And Manoah and his wife surely did not forget at that moment. Verse 23 goes on with Manoah's wife having to collect her thoughts and expressing that if, if it were God's intention to kill her or to kill them, he would have not allowed the event to go on as it did. But by those very words, we can tell that their disposition was not one of pride, right? They didn't assume that they were good enough to withstand the presence of the Lord, and that's why they were still alive. But rather, we see that they understood that God had allowed them to live, mainly for his own glory and purposes. And the passage ends with verses uh, 24 and 25. Says, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. So finally, we have the birth of Samson. The next chapter already begins with a grown up Samson looking for a wife. And this is very similar to Jesus' story, where uh, you know, it cuts to 
an adult version of Jesus. And nowhere else in the book of Judges do you have a nativity story. And like Jesus' story, it seems as if the writer does not place much emphasis on the details of the childhood. But it ought to at least be obvious that the birth of Samson is significant. And that's why we have such a detailed uh, description. God didn't merely use a man for Israel's deliverance like he did in the past. He grew in from scratch. And although we will see God using Samson in a mighty way, he isn't quite the savior as the one he was intended to point to, which is Jesus Christ. The Lord eventually brings about the true and greater savior of Israel. In a similar fashion in which, like Samson, God had foreknown him. We see in 1 Peter 1.20, where it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I like the NIV translation when it says, referring to Jesus, He was chosen before the foundation of the world. This is to say that within the Godhead, Jesus was already elected as true judge, true king, before the world was even made. And anyone prior or after served only as a pointer to him, just like Samson. And as glorious as Samson's nativity was, it only paved the way for the coming of the true Messiah. So in summary, just three quick points. Number one, hopefully you were able to see the following. Number one, that the point of the characters in the book of Judges were primarily to in, uh, intended to accomplish a goal that we see in Isaiah 40. Behold your God. The goal of all scripture is to point to the action and the work of God in history. Another point, hopefully you were, you were able to see that often God accomplishes his acts of salvation in the face of impossible human odds. We see that in biblical history. We, we also see that in the miracle of our own regeneration, right? And then, of course, point number three, that God has revealed himself both in the Old and in the New Testament, and the responses have been the same for those who've truly seen him. Face on the floor, fear and awe. And yet us, right, the people, his people today, who are in Christ, can now have confidence to approach God, still with reverence, of course, but with assurance that Christ has covered us. So those are three points, right? All of Scripture is to behold our God. God accomplishes his acts of salvation in the face of impossible human odds. Point number three, the response has always been the same when, when uh, beholding God, face on the floor, uh, in fear and repentance. And our hope, again, is that these judges constantly pointed to the to the coming of the Messiah, that in him we're covered, in him we have, uh, uh, we're able to come before a holy God and be, uh, be clean, presentable, uh, saved. All that is in Christ is now uh, given to us. He's the true king and the true judge. So that, that concludes the section for today. Next week, uh, Pastor Ron will continue with the next chapter uh, that gets more into the life of of Samson. Questions and comments? Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
Right. Right. Yeah, that blows my mind. Amen. Yeah, that's great. Very good. Any any other comments or questions? Okay, very good. Let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of the birth of Samson and all the details revealed that revealed more about your character to us, Lord. We see how you have prepared these men in the past for the task that you have had them throughout history, all leading to Christ. And we see how you are triune and how you have revealed yourself through the angel of the Lord and furthermore in the incarnation of Christ, the God-man. And we thank you for that. May these truths also bring us on our face as well, as it did Manoah and his wife, Lord, because you are worthy. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.